tonight, we're on Exodus chapter number 19, um, which is a pivotal, it's a turning point in redemptive history. Uh, so much in, in Exodus 19 is absolutely necessary for the understanding of the gospel of the church and who Christ is. It's the beginning of uh, God's covenant people as a nation. Uh, it's the next step in the uh, progressive revelation of God's redemptive plan, as we will see. So this is a crucial chapter. Unfortunately, in modern dispensationalism, popularized by Ryrie, uh, Schofield, and people like that, this chapter is discounted. It's simply relegated to the history of this ancient nation uh, that has no relevance to the church today. Uh, they are completely wrong, uh, as we will see in the study today. So tonight I'm going to give you a whirlwind view from Exodus all the way to the book of Revelation, and we'll see God's plan as it unfolds. But first, let's look at the foundation in Exodus 19. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mount. Well, the mount, uh, and Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of Israel and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people, and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people, and sanctified the people, and washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. The Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke and said, And God answered him by a voice 
And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come unto Mount Sinai, for thou charged us, saying, Set bounds upon the mount, and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. And Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Uh, and the rest of that is the Ten Commandments. Uh, so a couple of things that I want to uh, meet with, uh, I want to talk about today. God is meeting with all of the camp of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, there's one thing that's stressed throughout this chapter, and that is the holiness of God. God has chosen a people for himself, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, God has planned this redemption for his people to restore that which was lost uh, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and the, and the commission of Adam to uh, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. That was all lost. God is now working to redeem that and restore that kingdom. And we're coming on to the next plan of this. But one really big mistake that human beings tend to make is they tend to forget exactly how holy God is and exactly how sinful we are. And so God is giving this as the backdrop of everything that he's about to do so that we won't forget it. God is holy. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we mean that he is completely separate from all his creation. And there's two things that we mean by this. The first thing, we mean it ontologically that God is wholly other. Ontological is a big word that has to do with being as such. It answers the question, what is it? Whenever you are discussing with someone the nature of something and you are asking, what is it? You're talking about ontology, being, what being is. There are two types of being. There's God and there's everything else. This is laid out clearly in the very first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and also in the Ten Commandments. This, uh, God created all things in six days. There's nothing that God did not create. Therefore, God is uncreated being, and everything else is created being. For this reason, God is so far exalted, so far above all of his creation, there's no approach to God. Let's briefly compare this to the pagan view of God. The pagan view of God is that all of being, being as such, is like a ladder. Uh, if you can view it as a ladder, down at the bottom are things that have little being, like bugs, uh, rocks, worms, mud. Uh, think of the, the, the doctrine of incarnation. When you die, you come back either higher or lower on this scale of being. That's common to all pagan thought. At the top of this ladder is God himself, who is just like us, only bigger, stronger, greater, more powerful, more almighty, and so forth. And salvation is somehow moving up the ladder. This, is, uh, this view was made famous in, unfortunately, a gospel hymn about climbing Jacob's ladder. Have you ever heard that hymn? We're climbing Jacob's ladder, rung by rung, going up, going up, climbing Jacob's ladder. The problem with that is, is when you look at the scripture, 
We don't climb Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder is God descending to us. We don't ever climb the scale of being to somehow burst our way into heaven. That's what the Tower of Babel was. That denies the holiness of God. So throughout all of this, God is saying, you don't burst onto this mountain. You don't gaze upon the Lord. You don't pry into the secret things of God. You stay where you are. I will reveal myself to you the best way for you. And so God is going to reveal himself to us. We don't bounce our way into heaven. I didn't use the right word. We don't climb or fly or shoot or climb up into the sky or dive down into the abyss to find God. God must come to us for us to know anything at all. This is very simply uh, demonstrable with the word infinity. God is infinite. We are finite. Have you ever stopped to think about what exactly infinity is? You've got no idea. It means there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no succession of moments. But what exactly that is, there's no way for us to fathom. This is the holiness of God. He's completely other. The essence of his being is incomprehensibility, which means we don't take our concept of power and multiply it by a billion. That's Superman. That's not God. God's power is wholly other than ours. God's love is wholly other than ours. There is an analogy, but that's a different subject. That's the first thing we mean by the holiness of God. The second thing we mean by the holiness of God took place in the breach. When man rejected God's word, which we call sin, there was a breach that broke fellowship between man and God. God's holiness is such that he cannot bear sin. It is in his very nature to destroy sin wherever he sees it. That's in his nature. Um, he can withhold his wrath, but he cannot ignore his wrath. He cannot ignore his holiness and pretend to be something that he is not. Uh, the creeds put it very simply in saying things like, um, uh, God wills that his justice be satisfied. Well, God's will, is it necessary will? Yes, it's, it's his being. It's who he is. His justice will be satisfied. And here's a very uncomfortable fact for all of us. Sin, even the sin that we still have as believers, that still clings to us, is far, far worse than anything we can possibly imagine. I believe it is only out of God's mercy and God's grace that he withholds the full knowledge of our sin from us. Because if we saw what we were really like, I believe we would destroy ourselves. Um, that's the essence of sin. And that, this is throughout all of Scripture. The things that we are aware of, uh, we're aware of the times that we lost our temper for no reason. We're aware of the lusts of our heart. We're aware of the gossip and the slander and the lies and the hatred that we carry in our hearts. Those are all just symptoms of the real problem. The disease is far, far greater. Well, God isn't fooled. God knows that unless there's a mediator between God and man, God will destroy man. God cannot, his justice cannot abide sin. This is the foundation that we must understand before Christ is going to make any sense to us at all. Um, that wrath of God, the sword must fall. And so God is impressing upon the nation of Israel 
uh, and I'm going to get back to the heart of this in a minute. The heart of this is at the beginning, but I want to talk about the holiness first as the backdrop of this. You're not going to break through the mountain to go see God for two reasons. One is the incomprehensibility of his nature. Uh, God must reveal himself to us. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has revealed him. Uh, that's what the scripture says. The second reason is because of man's sin. No one just waltzes into the presence of God. We don't just say, hey, God, I'm here. I'm pretty cool. Accept me. I'm coming to the party. Never works that way. You don't approach God without a mediator. Now, with that in mind, think about what Moses is going to do. You kind of understand he's already gone up to the mountain. He's 80 years old, over 80 years old. Of course, God gave him a lot of strength, but I can't help but think in terms of He's older than me. I couldn't walk up this mountain two, three, four times. He walks up to the mountain, and the first thing God says is, okay, go back down. Tell him to stay away. I already told him that, Lord. He says, no, you go back down. So he turns around to go back down the mountain, back and forth down the mountain to make sure Israel is staying away from the mountain. There's the smoke and the lightning and the thunder, and Israel this is how God is revealing himself to Israel. He is a holy God. What's being impressed here is if there is no mediator, all Israel is dead. Now, that being said, look at the incredible promise that he makes at the beginning of this. And I'll spend the rest of my time on this. Uh, verse number four. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's the promise. We have three parts. First, there's God's redemption. He delivered them out of Egypt. He delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. And he uses this fascinating figure that I didn't understand until I watched a nature show by David Attenborough. I love David Attenborough. Uh, he's an atheist, believes in evolution, but he's incredible to watch. In this nature show, he's talking about birds, birds of prey, and how they travel back and forth. I wish I could give you the exact one. And he just had maybe a two-minute segment on a particular eagle that migrates all the way from Africa to Asia. And in that migration route, he soars right over the Holy Land, right over Israel, this eagle. When it gets over Israel, it's so far up, it's just a tiny speck. But they knew about this eagle. And the amazing thing, Attenborough points out, is this eagle will go 3,000 miles without stopping. And how on earth can an eagle fly 3,000 miles without stopping? It has to do with the wings. The wings are spread out, and if the eagle tries to fly the eagle will crash and burn and die because he doesn't have the energy to fly. But if he waits for the breeze and lifts, him, and lifts himself into the breeze and goes with the updrafts, he can keep going all the way to his destination. Now think about that as an incredible figure of speech. Remember the, uh, the passage at the end of Isaiah chapter 40 where it talks about those that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. When you're flapping and you're flying and you're flapping around trying to make sense of things and trying to go, you're going to be exhausted and you die. But if you wait for the Lord, 
remember the word for breeze and wind and spirit are all the same thing. You wait on the Lord, you mount up with wings as eagles. God supports us and carries us and lifts us along and gives us the energy for everything we need to do. And this is what he did to Israel. He told them later on at the end of the journey, he said, remember, your shoes never wore out. You had food, you had water, your enemies couldn't molest you. You had everything you needed. And here he's using the figure of, I delivered you as an eagle. The, uh, I, 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 I bore you on eagle's wings. I carried you like that eagle flies through the air for all those miles. It wasn't your strength. It was the Lord's strength. So that's the first thing God tells them. He gives them the account of redemptive history. And then he gives them a, a condition and then a promise. First, the condition. You will be a holy priesthood. Uh, a, a priesthood of, uh, sorry, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if we look at that, a kingdom of priests. A priest is someone who comes in, it's, he's consecrated to service. He's consecrated to be in God's presence. He's talking about restoring fellowship with God. I believe this is an allusion back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, that Adam and Eve both were prophets, priests, and kings unto God. I'm not a patriarchalist. I don't believe that that was given to just Adam. I believe it was given to Adam and Eve, because the scripture says, male and female, he created them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Adam and Eve both were to tend and keep the garden together as a married couple. They were prophets, priests, and kings. As priests, they walked and talked with God. They kept the garden holy. They tended the garden. Uh, as kings, they were to have dominion and spread the kingdom, the reign of God throughout the whole world, where righteousness and peace ruled and reigned. That uh, The figure, it's all vague uh, and because it didn't happen. Adam and Eve lost it all before it even started out. But if you think just to the basic first command, it says in Genesis 2 that the herbs of the field and the bushes didn't grow yet because God hadn't yet made man to till the field. God planted the garden, but the rest of the garden was to be planted by man. Mankind was supposed to make the entire earth the dwelling place of God and man together. And this was all summed up in that command to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Uh, they were to uh, uh, bring that rule of God everywhere they went, reflecting God. If um, uh, using the language of the Middle East, uh, when a king conquered a certain place, before he moved on to the next place, he put his image up. His image was the symbol of his authority. This is my place. That imagery is what is being used in the Old Covenant when God, when mankind was supposed to be spreading from place to place and spreading the reign of, the, of God throughout the whole world, planting the garden, tending the garden, being fruitful, multiplying, filling the whole earth. They were also to reflect all the attributes of God everywhere they went as image bearers of God. His wisdom, his mercy, his compassion, his kindness, his beauty, his order, his uh, name, his uh, uh, personhood, all of that is wrapped up in this. That, of course, was lost in the, uh, uh, in the fall, and the whole world, the scripture teaches, was put under the 
rule, the kingship of Satan. Satan is the usurper. He uh, is sitting on a throne that isn't his. Um, and God promised that he is going to remove that kingdom, destroy that kingdom, and he is going to establish his kingdom. And here is the beginning of that promise. Israel, the descendants of Abraham, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons, were to be this royal priesthood, this kingdom of priests in the presence of God forever, holy, separated unto the Lord, spreading throughout the whole world and bringing that uh, garden of Eden, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God throughout the whole world. Now, the condition, if you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, God is holy. You must obey his voice. So what happened? They didn't obey his voice. They never obeyed his voice over and over again. Israel was never the telos, the completion of this in the decree of God. God, of course, knew what was going to happen. He knew that there is no human being on earth that can fulfill what Adam was called to fulfill. And why not? Because of sin. Now is the reality of sin. It's no longer just a matter of God saying, well, okay, um, I take it all back. You go have dominion over the earth. It doesn't work that way anymore because now there's sin, which is far uglier than we can possibly imagine. And so God knows that. As they go through that whole history, we're going to talk about how God can dwell with his people, even with the reality of sin, and how God puts them, as you will, in a holding pattern, all looking forward to the one who's going to fulfill it. And yet the reality of sin invades everything. And Israel, this chosen nation, separated about, uh, out from all the other nations, these chosen people of God, sinned over and over and over again. You read through the book of Kings, and by the time you get to uh, um, Ahaz, uh, the father of Hezekiah, they're offering uh, their children as burnt offerings unto the Lord. The abominations is just excruciating to read. Um, even the godly kings, you look at them and you go, really, this is what you're going to do? Uh, it's, it's just unbelievable until God finally divorces them. So with this same language in mind, look at what God says in Hosea chapter 1. Hosea is God's divorce decree um, to Israel. And yet, even while he's divorcing Israel, he is giving them hope, but he doesn't explain how yet, just in images and in shadows. Uh, one of these days I'm going to you know, preach through Hosea. I did a Bible study on it years ago. It's one of my favorite books. But listen to the very first chapter. Uh, Hosea marries an un unfaithful woman. He has three children. The children are given the names by God, and the names of the children show the judgment that God is bringing on Israel. The Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. I'll spend time on that another day. Second, and it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, but will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow or by sword or by battle or by horses or by horsemen. 
Now, when she had weaned Lower Hama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Okay, so this is when God says, You are not my people, and I will not be your God. What he's done is he has now made Israel, because of their sins, he has made Israel just like every nation of the world. This is what they've wanted. This is what they, they asked for. And so God says, okay, I'm granting you your wish. You are now not my people. I will not be your God. I will no longer have mercy on you. I will not treat you any specially. And then throughout it, he has all this strange language, like, yet I will have mercy on, Jacob, on, on Judah. I will allure him. I will call him back. All these different things. But he doesn't piece it all together yet. That time has not yet come. But the fact of the matter is, they cannot be God's holy nation because they are sinful, because they continually break the covenant. God seeks his firstborn son. Remember Israel was called the firstborn son way back in Exodus 5? God seeks a firstborn son that is an obedient firstborn son, not a rebellious son. And that son finally arrives in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, so he does not inherit the sin of Adam, and yet born of the woman, just like it said way back in Genesis 3.16, descendant of Abraham, of the same flesh as Abraham. This is why such care is given to trace his genealogy throughout the Gospels, that he actually had the blood and DNA of Abraham coursing through his veins. This is important for us to remember. And when he was baptized, the voice came from heaven. He was 30 years old. The voice came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he said that for our benefit, for the spirit that's descending on him is now being given to all who believe on him. The language, we're going to go to this in a second. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to take, read a couple of verses from 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2. And he's addressing this to those who believe. First, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he calls them this. Uh, All those who believe, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, there's the holiness of the Spirit that God gives to us, uh, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. You see what he's saying? God has now chosen his elect far beyond just the tribe of Israel to all those who he is sanctifying by his spirit and their status as the people of God are in their union with Christ by faith, which he's going to explain more fully in chapter 2, verse number 7. So skipping down to chapter 2, verse 7, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. Unto them that are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But we are different. We are appointed to faith. We believe. And therefore, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. 
you see that using the exact same language as way back in Exodus chapter 19, that we who believe because of our union with Christ, our union with him, we are the children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And therefore, since he was the one who fulfilled the covenant perfectly, he was the one that fulfilled this, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. He obeyed that, not for himself, but for us. Therefore, we shall be a peculiar treasure. He says, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see what he's saying? We are, as the church, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation because of Jesus Christ. Why? That's the next phrase back to 1 Peter 2, verse number 8. He says, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. You see how Peter takes that passage in Hosea and applies it to the church. Since all, Israel, since all Israel was cut off and called not a people, they had the same status as every single other nation on the earth when Jesus Christ came into the world. And when he came into the world, he called all of his people to himself, starting in Jerusalem, then to Judah, then Samaria, then throughout the whole world. By the way, that's what the book of Acts is about. Jesus said, Go preach the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, then to Judah, Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the world. To every Jew, the end of the world would have been Rome. And so when Paul was preaching in Rome, that's when the book of Acts ended. That was fulfilled. Now, of course, it's far beyond Rome, all the way out here in Yuba City or up in Alberta. Uh, there the word of God has gone, and God is still calling his people. And one thing he says is we are a holy priesthood, a royal people, a peculiar... Peculiar is a, it's a word that means this belongs, uh, trying to figure out how to say it. We don't have a word that means exactly what peculiar means. Uh, let's look at somebody's mannerisms. Somebody's mannerisms are peculiar to that person. That means that they belong to that person and no one else. They're very special. They, they are guarded carefully. They are the things that mark him or her for who he is. I love my wife because of her peculiarities. That doesn't mean because of her weirdnesses, although that might be included, but it means everything about her, the things that are peculiar to her alone. We are God's peculiar people. Think about that. Isn't that astounding? We're God's peculiar people. He has chosen to reveal himself through us to the world. That's an astounding thought that we're his peculiar people, sanctified by the Holy Spirit and a royal priesthood, therefore fulfilling that dominion mandate as we spread the gospel throughout the whole world. I am not talking about Christian culture. Every single political movement that has been designed to spread Christian culture has ended up in tyranny and death and slaughter. It always will. God's kingdom is spread through the proclamation of the gospel, through the whole armor of God that he explains at the end of the book of Ephesians. And then here is the last. I promised I'd take you to Revelation, and I will, and then we'll quit. Revelation chapter 1, when John sees Jesus, he says this, and from Jesus Christ, this is his greeting, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, 
unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's that language again, kings and priests. This is who we are as the church, men, women, and child, as our catechism says. There was a uh, an article written about 100 years ago by an atheist named Bertrand Russell, um, and the name of the article was Why I'm Not a Christian. You can find it online. It's fascinating to read. Um, and it's interesting. It's telling uh, because the first thing he wants to do is define what Christianity is. And so he's going to define what Christianity is and then refute and explain why he's not a Christian. So the first thing he does is he defines Christianity as someone who has some kind of regard for Jesus as a good, moral, and wise teacher. And he says, I know a lot of Christians disagree as to whether or not he's true and eternal God or whether or not he's just a prophet or uh, whether he did the miracles or whether he didn't do the miracles. But what every Christian agrees on is that he was a good moral teacher. Right then he loses the battle uh, because he's not defining Christianity. He should have read Machen first. Um, Machen defined Christianity by comparing it to liberalism. If you don't believe that Jesus was the eternal son of God, you're not a Christian, whether you want to hold him as a, a moral teacher or not. From then on, it's easy to refute, which is what Bertrand, which is what Russell did. He said, well, he wasn't a good teacher because he threatened you with hell if you didn't listen to him. That's a mean teacher. Like, well, unless it's true and unless he's God. And then it's a very merciful thing to say. Anyway, that being said, let's look at what the Bible says and what our, our creeds have summed up, what it means to be a Christian. From all of these verses and all of these passages, the catechism sums this up beautifully in question 30. Two, why are you called a Christian? Because by faith, I'm a member of Christ. That's a body part. It's body part. And thus a partaker of his anointing, in order that I may also confess his name, or prophets, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, or priests, and with a free conscience may reign against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter in eternity, reign with him over all creatures, or kings. We're to take dominion over whatever little kingdom God has given us or whatever great kingdom God has given us. And we take dominion by proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming his attributes and his compassion and his mercy uh, and shining the light wherever we are. Um, this is how we take, the back, take back the kingdom of darkness and, and rage. Paul says, redeeming the time buying back the time because the days are evil. And we do that by a glass of cold water to the thirsty guy, uh, visiting the, the, the people in the hospital, the people in prison, saying a kind word, speaking up for the voiceless, for the oppressed, speaking truth even when you know it's going to cost you, speaking up for what's right even when you know it's going to cost you, um, and uh, doing all things winsomely and in love. This is what it means to be a Christian partakers of Christ's righteousness, members of his anointing. It's a beautiful thing. With that, we will stop. Uh, let's close in prayer, and then I'll unmute, and we can go with any questions that we might have. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the, the great benefit that you have condescended to call a people to yourself, that you even came in the flesh, and not just in the flesh, but in the flesh of the Virgin Mary, the lowest of the low, came in the form of a servant and suffered even the death of the cross, that you might make us 
kings and priests to you. What a glorious thing. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to speak the truth in love. Help us to walk boldly in this dark world. Help us to be at peace with our neighbor. Help us to know the things that we ought to say and the things that we ought to not say. And forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Unmute. Oh, okay. Everybody is unmuted. What it says on your end, I have no idea. But for my end, you're unmuted. I think you're still recording, Sam. Ah, thank you. 